So before we look at biblical justice, let's define what justice is according to uh, Google. And justice is defined as just behavior or treatment. Or in other words, you get what's coming to you, what is owed to you. Now, often justice and revenge can be mixed up. Now, my favorite superhero is Batman. And uh, any other uh, opinion on that, I don't want to hear. But if we know the story of Batman, okay, in the movie Batman Begins, we know Batman was a billionaire, Bruce Wayne was a billionaire, and his parents were killed outside of an opera house. And in the movie Batman Begins, we actually get to see the, the development of Bruce Wayne's mind as he's thinking about avenging his parents. He's thinking about taking vengeance out on the person who killed his parents. Well, somebody else gets to that person first, and Bruce Wayne is disappointed, and he's talking to his friend Rachel about um, justice and revenge often are the same thing. And she says, no, they're never the same things. And she says, justice is about harmony. Revenge is about making yourself feel better. And there is some truth to this. I would argue that there is some truth to this. Often, vengeance is not about justice. It's about us wanting somebody else to hurt because they hurt us. It's not about actually the punishment fit the crime, but we want to see somebody suffer like we have suffered. But biblically, God, if we're using that kind of definition, we're saying that if God has, executes vengeance on somebody, he's just trying to make himself feel better. But that's not what God is doing. God is not trying to make himself feel better. God is not an uncontrollable child who just snaps one day and decides to do something about evil. He says, vengeance is mine, and the day of judgment is set. He's not ruled by emotions. Or when Paul says in Romans chapter 12, he says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The vengeance of the Lord is justice. We as humans can be driven by emotion. Now, if God is not driven by emotion. God is perfectly self-controlled, perfectly justified in his actions. And if you want proof that people are often run and governed by their emotions, talk to somebody who disagrees with you about anything. Politics. It's an election year. We can start this. Uh, religion. Pop culture, emotions drive us. And especially if we disagree with somebody, tempers can flare, and we can say things we don't normally mean or wouldn't normally say, and we see how much, one, we're fallen in our nature, but two, how little self-control we actually have. Now, the desire for justice is a good thing. But so often, Christians don't actually understand what biblical justice is, uh, or justice as defined by Scripture. And this verse in Deuteronomy that Paul quotes in Romans, I would say, is, is the biblical definition of justice. That vengeance is the Lord's. It belongs to Him. Justice belongs to the Lord. 
And any justice that we bring forth, and there are realms of authority that God has given to us to execute judgment, but uh, justice, but any justice that is outside of the biblical scope, that is outside of what the Bible talks about, is not actually true justice. If we look at Israel, verse 17, God says, You have wearied the Lord. You have wearied me. Now, one commentator says Malachi is saying that the Lord is tired of the words of skepticism that are coming from the faithless, disobedient priests and people. God's patience is worn out by their words, which do not honor him or give him the glory that is due to him. Now, do you ever feel this way? Can you ever put yourself in this position where you know somebody and they say, they're on your side, they're with you, they tell you they're going to do something, they're going to make these promises to you, they stand by their promises, and time and time again, they either fall short or they don't follow through with what they say at all. Their words are empty and their words weary us. Or if you're a parent and you expect more out of your child than they are able to give, they weary you. I, was, uh, I heard a story on the radio this morning as I was driving in about um, the different gifts that parents give their kids on their 16th birthdays. And you have a lot of lower to middle class people, and their kids, when they were 16, we're looking at people who are probably in their 40s, 50s now, but they got uh, a job for their 16th birthday. Then you had some of the upper class people, and they were talking about the Camaro that their parents gave them for their 16th birthday. And one person was talking, and he said, my friend got a Camaro for his 16th birthday, and the one rule his parents had was don't speed. Now, you give a 16-year-old a Camaro for his birthday, you're asking way too much of them to say, do not speed. This person, his, his friend, had his license taken away by the time he was 18 because of the fun that he got to have in this Camaro. And it brought his parents weariness and disappointment and all that. But from a different angle, if the Lord is wearied with empty words and empty offerings, the difference is God expects perfection, of course. He calls us to be holy and perfect. But God also knows we can't achieve perfection, which, spoiler alert, we'll get to that in just a few moments with, with uh, Christ. But God calls us. But when we say we're, if we're Christians, and we say we're going, we honor God, and we love God, and we make these offerings towards God, but every single time we either don't follow through or fall short, it's empty words. Our worship is meaningless if we are not truly seeking to honor God and give him the glory that is due to him. Now, Israel is God's chosen people. And if we look back at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 16 through 20, we see what God has said to his people here. He says, If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering and take possession of it. Starting off really good. But if your hearts turn away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, does that sound familiar? 
I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. You obey my commandments. If you are faithful to me, you will live long in this land. But if you turn to other gods, there is a curse. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament and the New Testament and every century since, uh, time and time again, the people of God turn from him. They're disobedient to him. And what does God do? Well, he sends judgment. He executes justice. You have the Assyrians. You have the Babylonians. You have the Medo-Persians. You have the Greeks. You have the Romans. You have struggle. And eventually, um, ultimately, the Jewish people rejected their Messiah. They rejected Christ. Church, the, the Lord's patience will not last forever. The Lord's patience will not last forever. And we shouldn't live like it will. We shouldn't live like we have one more day or one more hour or that we are, are uh, going to avoid or miss the judgment or justice of God. But we need to live as holy people, as people obedient to God, and we need to live with the expectation of his return and the longing of his return. But what does wearying the Lord look like? In this context, we see it says, by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Now, what is being said here is pretty clear. Israel wanted justice, against their enemies, against people who they viewed as sinners, now. They wanted God to do something about it right now. And God was not acting quick enough, quickly enough, and because he was slow in their eyes to uh, do this, they said God obviously thinks evil is good. There are very few passages of Scripture, in my own humble opinion, that I think communicate a more blasphemous reaction. Say that a holy God, to say that a good God, to say that the one true God would ever say evil is good. God who rescued them out of slavery. The God who went ahead of them and fought for them and gave them the land that he promised The God who, time after time again, when they would turn away from him, would call them back to himself. And they say, God thinks evil is good and he delights in it. Just because he hasn't acted the way that they expect him to act. Calvin says this, What they said was that the ungodly and the wicked pleased God, even because they covered by false colors their sin, uh, false colors their sin, so that they were not convicted, convinced of anything wrong. They then imputed whatever was evil to their enemies, 
They did not commonly expostulate with God because he left sins unpunished, but because they received not his aid. We hence see that the Jews here did not clamor and contend with God through hatred of wickedness, but had only a regard to their own advantages, nor did they condemn the sins of others, except those by which they received some harm or loss, and that they considered none wicked except those by whom they were injured. We hence learn that they did not complain through zeal for what was right, but because they would have but because they would have God bound to them to undertake their cause like earthly patrons. I think often we can have the same type of attitude, that we look at the world, we look at all what's going on around us, and we say, all right, God, do something about it. Do something now. God does not work on our schedule. God acts by his own will. God can do something about evil as long as it's a convenience to us. Common complaint from critics and unbelievers is, well, if God is good, if God is righteous, and if God is holy, why is there evil in the world? To which, if I talk to those people and they say, why doesn't he do something about it? I'll go to the flood. I'll go to Noah's Ark and I'll say, well, look, the world was filled with violence Not one righteous person was found except for Noah, and so God wiped out everybody on the earth. And they say, well, that's mean. Well, that's God doing something about evil. He said, well, not like that. Well, how about when God sends them into the promised land and tells them to take out these different nations and these towns and villages who are offering their children to Moloch? Well, they say, well, that doesn't sound like something a loving God would do. That's pretty mean. That's not, well, that's God doing something about evil. The problem is we don't want justice. We don't want God to do something about evil because then he would have to do something about us. We want God to do something about the evil that we think God should do something about. We should not be asking the question of where is the God of justice. No matter how bad things might get out there, We should not be asking this question of where is he? Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. God is not thrown off by the wickedness of the world. God is not the author of evil, but God allows evil. God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. He does this so that he might be glorified so that his glory would shine forth. And if we think that God should act in justice towards people out there because they're bad and they deserve what God has for them, but we think that we should get off without any kind of consequence or anything like that, then we don't understand justice. We don't understand God. We don't understand holiness. People complain about things like predestination and election, and they say, well, if God predestines some to salvation and others not, that's not fair. Again, we don't want fair. We want grace. We want mercy. What's fair is that we would all go to hell. What's fair is that we would get what we deserve for our sins. We want grace. God saves because he's a savior. God saves because it's part of who he is. 
But God is not obligated to save everybody. God does have to be just, though. Just is part of who God is as well. He does have to execute just judgment and justice. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7 says that the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the father on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The justice for sin, the justice demanded for sin, is death. Your sin, my sin, all of it demands eternal death and eternal punishment in a very real place called hell. God cannot just put his justice to the side. He says the guilty will by no means go unpunished. So how can God remain just and still forgive sins? In Christ. This is the gospel. You and me have sinned, that we all fall short of the glory of God, that we all deserve hell, that we all deserve the wrath of God. But God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Christ is the only one who has ever lived a perfect life, who fulfilled the law perfectly. And he was sent here. He came to earth. He entered into his creation to be the propitiation for sins, to take on the sins of the world, to be, to be a sacrifice on the cross so that God's wrath could be poured out upon him, that God can execute his justice on Christ so that those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who believe in him on faith, Justice has been served, and God can forgive your sins and remain just and holy and good. So we ask the question of where is the God of justice? Well, church, he's on his throne. We don't have to wonder where he is. We don't have to wonder if he's going to do something about the evil of the world because he already has done something about the evil of the world by saving you and saving me and offering his son on the cross. But he also promises that he will do something about the evil of the world. Christ is coming back. He will judge the living and the dead. He will execute perfect justice. No one gets by. There is not a single thing that gets by the eye of God. Psalm 110, verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He is reigning, and the footstool is his enemies. But then we turn to Psalm chapter 2, which I love this psalm. And if you're ever worried about God doing something about the evil or God letting evil just kind of reign and rule without being checked, read Psalm chapter 2, and we're going to read the entire thing. It's not long. It's 12 verses. But just listen to what God says here. Listen to what the psalmist writes. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them with his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. If you're worried about the political state of the world right now, read Psalm 2. I think this is a good verse going into a election year. For he who sits, on, sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. God will not let the guilty go unpunished. And as we pray for people, as we pray for our leaders, we pray for God's justice, but we also pray for God's mercy. We pray for the souls of our leaders that they would repent, that they would come to know Christ. We pray for the souls of our friends, and we pray for the souls of our enemies. We don't want fairness. We do want God to act justly, and that justice will be poured out either on Christ or on you, if you do not know Christ. So where is the God of justice today, church? He's showing mercy to thousands, receiving glory and salvation. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And be encouraged. There is nothing that gets past our God. There is great evil in the world for sure. And there may be times when we can be tempted to think and to say, like the Israels, where, Israelites, where is the God of justice? When is justice coming? It is coming, church. Our job is to preach the gospel to all people, to be faithful in our calling, to live holy lives no one will get away with anything. Not one single act of evil will not be brought into the light and will receive the justice that is due to it. Our God is good and perfectly just, who will by no means let the wicked go unpunished. If you are here today and you have not placed your trust, your faith in Christ Jesus, the message of the gospel, the message of justice, repent of your sins. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And we can sing over oh, the wonderful love he has promised, promised for you and for me. Though we have sinned, he has mercy and pardon, pardon for you and for me. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and we praise you that you are a God of justice. You are also a God of mercy, that you have called us to yourself that your justice was put upon Christ, that we can stand before you blameless because of the righteousness of Christ, not because of us or our own works, for those only demand death. But Lord, we look to Christ. I pray if there is anyone here who does not know Christ, that they would turn to him, that you would work in their hearts, that you would remove their heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh, that they might love you and worship you and glorify you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.